Welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that inspire you to get your story told. Be sure to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com, and while you're there, subscribe and like us via your favorite social media network. Now sit back, get ready to take some notes, and let's get started. This episode of Leap Into Your Story podcast is brought to you by Leap Into Your Story course. Visit leapintoyourstory.com where you have a guide to get your story told. I'm Victoria Anderson, and welcome to Leap Into Your Story podcast, uh, where you discover your inner story. We help you break it down into a process that will work for you, and you can meet others who've already done it. Uh, We interview amazing guests who provide powerful insights that will inspire you to get your own story told. So be sure to visit my website at leapintoyourstory.com. And while you're there, subscribe and like via your favorite social media platform. So in this episode, we're going to be discussing inspiring a love of reading. So sit back, get your notepad, two pens, and let's get started. So my guest today is Chris Ebach. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Awesome. Author of over 60 books for young people. So she'll be sharing the qualities needed to be a great children's book writer. And we are very, very interested in knowing more about that because uh, I think that's a great genre. And I think a lot of possibilities. And certainly, we want to inspire young minds to even write their own books, even early on. So, uh, Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about your journey? Okay. Uh, I, when I was growing up, I was a big reader, but I never really considered being a writer. I think that it was just not something that I, I realized people did. Even though I was reading all of these books, which obviously had been written by someone I didn't make that connection to people who were alive today were actually doing the work of making these books. Um, And we didn't ever have like an author visit to our schools or anything like that. So Mm. I I decided I wanted to um, study photography just because that was, you know, something I was interested in. So I went to art school and realized I did not want to be a photographer. But uh, the positive side was that I learned a lot about creativity So how to tell a story through art, how to think creatively, and especially how to critique, because the teachers were always big on, you can't just say that you like or don't like something, you have to explain what you think is working or not and why. So that was actually a really good background in writing. And then eventually when I started doing critiques for other people and teaching writing, being able to explain why something was working or not maybe offer suggestions to how to make it better. Um, And also to understand when a critique would be encouraging and leave the person wanting to go back and work more versus when a critique could be sort of soul crushing and make you want to never make art again. Um, All of those, you know, 
understanding all of that was very helpful. I also started writing for the school paper and that got me interested in journalism. So uh, after a couple of years, I went back to college and studied professional writing and publishing where I took classes in nonfiction, fiction, magazine publishing, book publishing, and even a class in picture books for young children. And at that time, I was thinking more of writing for magazines, um, maybe travel, um, you know, longer pieces. But when I was looking for work in New York with magazines as an assistant editor, I started writing a novel as something fun to do in between writing resumes and having interviews and all that stuff. So, um, and that actually turned out to be The Well of Sacrifice, which was my first published novel. And I set it in Mayan Guatemala because I'd spent a summer traveling through Mexico, Guatemala, and Belize with a friend and just really fell in love with that culture. And I had loved stories like Julia the Wolves and Island of the Blue Dolphins when I was in middle school. So I wanted to create that kind of adventure story that took the reader to this other place. And it's old, which I did not realize at the time was so astonishing to sell a first novel. So it gave me a little bit of an unrealistic idea of what it takes to sell a novel. Uh, but I decided that maybe I wasn't as interested in the eight to five working for a magazine job. So I quit to be a freelance writer, uh, which actually meant I did a lot of temp office work for several years uh, sure. writing in my free time. Um, but eventually I wound up doing a lot of educational publishing, um, working for companies where they say, we want a book on geology and mm -hmm. it's got to be this long and it has this many chapters and it has these sidebars. And so I've written everything from um, historical topics. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of science books. I'm, I never even took science in college. I never took chemistry <laughs> or physics in high school, but that actually has worked really well because if I can understand it, I can explain it to a fourth grader and they can understand it. Um, wow. And wow. even things like um, a series of four cookbooks. Um, nice. And some fiction as well. Sometimes most work for hire tends to be nonfiction, but uh, like this was a series of three books set in other countries that introduced young readers to those countries, but through a fictional story. So I was doing a lot of that kind of work. I wrote another seven or eight novels that didn't sell before finally selling another series, the Haunted series about kids who travel with a Ghost Hunter TV show, um, which came out with three books. So that, you know, by that time, I was fairly well established in writing for children, but I also always like to have new challenges. So I started writing for adults and writing um, romantic suspense and mystery and romance as I've got a ring light here that's kind of causing a glare but <laughs> under the name Chris Bach um, and so those were different because suddenly instead of a 35,000 word novel I was writing a 60 to 80,000 80, word novel which is a big wow. difference yes yes but you know always different challenges um, so I've started writing a series of sweet romance novels set around a cat cafe and so that's been really fun because, you know, I get to, I get to look at cat videos and call it work. It's nice. <laughs> so um, yeah. I've done some self-publishing. I've, at this point, I've basically written nonfiction and fiction for children of all ages and for adults um, in books and magazines. Uh, so a little bit of everything. 
Right. Yeah. You, you have quite an assortment of both nonfiction and fiction, but you're kind of like me. You're both right brain and left brain. So you have the art and the science. And I always kind of balance those out, even in my books, too, where you'll see the logical, but then the, you'll see the super. It's like almost the extremes. Right. Um, <laughs> Yeah, my personality in some of my books. <laughs> and I think especially when you're writing for kids, like if you're writing nonfiction for kids, you know, that you don't want an encyclopedia article or something very dry. Right. You know, they're not necessarily going to this book because it, they're interested in the subject. Yeah. So you have to find that creative way in to make it really fun and intriguing and playful. Uh, so that's, that's a neat challenge, but it, it does help to have sort of both sides to be able to do the research and know that you're being accurate, and but also to be able to do the, the playful, yeah. creative side. And, and it makes them curious, too, to learn other subjects. So, yes. Um, and if they like your style, the parent will continue to buy your books because that style appeals to their children. So, right. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you you might get a letter from a child, um, and I know a lot of, I've heard a lot of authors or other writers say that that there's a book that is the book that got a kid to be a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember mine because I just, I've been, you know, I loved reading from such a young age, but for some kids, it may not be till fourth or fifth grade um, that they actually even finish a book by choice. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's a really powerful thing that you can do. And, and it can be nonfiction because um, a lot of kids are more interested. Um, boys, especially, you know, I don't want to do too much of a sort of, break down the genders as if there's always a rule, but a lot of boys are more interested in sort of the nonfiction collecting facts. Mm-hmm. Um, kids on the autism spectrum tend to be more interested in nonfiction and maybe struggle a little bit more with understanding sort of story, um, character and th- thematic things. So any book might be the book that gets a kid to be a reader for the first time. Yes. I'm going to take a moment and pause and let's think about that before we go on to the next. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for that. Um, Now let's talk about what got you interested in children's novels and writing for young adults. Uh, Some of it was being such a reader as I grew up and my family moved Uh, right before sixth grade and again right before eighth grade and I was kind of a shy child so um, didn't make friends very quickly and especially moving at the beginning of summer when you're not meeting kids through school um, I spent a lot of time at the library and so there's kind of a saying in children's literature and children's writers that you write for the age that was most formative for you and for some that's you know age five and for some it's 17 and so I think for me, it was kind of that middle grade where um, we moved from Saudi Arabia when I was in grade school to Colorado for two years and then to Alaska. And so really starting over with different um, schools and even a little bit different culture and reading was a bit of a refuge. Hmm. Um, and then the other thing was a little more practical is that when I was looking for magazine work and thinking about writing a novel, it just seemed more doable to write a 200 page or 150 page middle grade novel than a 300 page adult novel. Uh, it was just less intimidating. <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of what got me into it. And then it just felt like that worked. I think um, 
my natural voice is fairly straightforward, not real fancy. And my training in um, journalism is more, you know, you write to like a sixth grade level often. It's about communicating the information, not being pretty in your language. So, um, and that, you know, that can work for writing adult genre fiction as well, mysteries and romance and so forth. But I was never drawn to writing more sort of literary adult novels where it's about um, the, the language and the poetry and um, the complex ideas. I was more interested in telling a fun story in a fairly straightforward, easy to access way. And so that works really well in writing for children. Wonderful. That is great. So tell us a little about, um, you know, the structure. There's some authors that have everything planned out and, and there's others, well, you know what, I'm going to just go on the journey mm-hmm. with my characters. So where, where are you on this spectrum? Um, well, as we kind of said, the, the left brain, right brain, you know, I like to be organized. Um, it took a while to sort of understand how to do that. So with The Well of Sacrifice, you know, the first novel I wrote, I sort of sketched out this outline, but I started, my, my first idea for that book was of this Mayan girl being thrown into the sacrificial well that the Maya use for rituals and surviving Mm. Uh, because that happened not often, but rarely. And then that person would be seen as like a messenger from the gods. So I started with that and I thought that was going to be early in the story. And then as I started writing, I thought, oh, but you need to know about this and you need to know how they got here and you need to know how this happened. And it wound up that I, that scene was near the climax so I tried to outline, but I didn't really, you know, know enough about story structure at that point to do a good job of it. So over time, um, I've gotten better at outlining. And then sometimes it's required, like uh, with the, the Haunted series about kids traveling with a Ghost Hunter TV show, it was a three book deal and they wanted an outline for the next books. And that meant I had to come up with something that I could share with an editor that made it look like the story was going to work. And now I'm writing a mystery series for adults um, that a publisher is bringing out next year. And same kind of thing. They, they bought the first book, but then they wanted an outline for the second book. And now we're talking about books three and four. So I had to write a synopsis, not a numbered outline, but a synopsis that sort of shows how the story starts, some of the twists and turns, and how it ends. And I feel like it's really helpful, actually, because it saves me probably at least two drafts by doing the work of figuring out the plot in advance, Um, especially for those plot-heavy books that are like adventure or mystery or romantic suspense. Um, When I'm writing my Cat Cafe Sweet Romances for Adults, they're much more character-driven. So I might just start with, I know who the two main characters are. I know why they're a good fit, but what's keeping them apart. Um, What they think they need or want and what they really need or want. And then I might have a few ideas for some things that are happening in the story that might be like um, kitten rescue or um, one of them has the, these two characters going on a rescue mission to a house where the owner has died and left a bunch of cats who are abandoned. So they have to go out there and get them. And it's a, there's a snowstorm and they're trapped overnight and they don't like each other very much when they get, you know, when they start. (laughs) So, you know, it's just kind of, you think of a few fun aspects like that of, of what could happen with this basic premise but it's not necessarily a detailed outline. 
Gotcha. Um, and I know some writers really feel like they have to start writing in order to get to know their characters and figure out where the story is going. Um, and that's fine. I don't think that there are any rules that work for everybody. But even for those writers, I often recommend that after they finished a draft or maybe even a second draft, you go back and outline the story, and kind of look at it chapter by chapter and you know, make a sentence or two about what's happening. Uh, because that way you can analyze the story more easily. It's hard to keep a big story in mind yeah. and see the whole thing. But if you have an outline that's maybe two to five pages, you can start analyzing it and saying, oh, I've got a plot hole here. Or this chapter does this thing, but so do these other chapters. I could probably cut some of those. Or I introduced a subplot and then I forgot about it. Yeah. You know, or I thought Guilty. this character was going to be important Guilty. and they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> so an outline is a great way to sort of, you know, simplify all of that and put it in a, in a smaller format so that you can see it and analyze it and make notes about what to do on your revision. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is great advice because even though I know it, just hearing it again and just having that reminder, but I was like, yep, subplot, I'll start off and go, Oh, duh. I forgot. Right. (laughs) And you have to go in there and revise. You know, I, I always joke. I think I'm really not an author. I'm just a continuous editor. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it, you Quality, have to go though. back, make sure your continuity is all good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but one of the problems can be then if you always just sort of start at the beginning and start editing, sometimes you may lose steam. Yeah. And so you have a great first three chapters and then the next few chapters are okay, but you know, later on, you've lost track of some of those things. And so that, yeah. again, that's why doing the outline analysis and making notes on what you need to do can sort of keep you on track for making sure you actually make those changes all the way through the story. Yeah, that's, that's a very good idea. Now, um, do you, um, what is your preference? Do you do plot or character? Or does it, it depends on the book? It depends on the book now. Um, I started out very much as a plot-oriented author. And I think, you know, with The Well of Sacrifice, I didn't know what I was doing, but somehow by accident, it worked. And this character just sort of came to life in my mind and was a very sort of strong-willed person. And so I had her and then I worked out the plot. And I think the reason my next novels didn't sell was because I wasn't good with the character at that point so I was I could figure out the plotting but reader you know the editors who I was submitting to just weren't interested in the character as much um, and the voice so over time I've had to get better with character and when writing for children I mean sure you can certainly have character driven stories and kids can fall in love with a character and want to follow them through their adventures Um, even for picture books for the younger children you have some of these stories like don't let the pigeon drive the bus or fancy Nancy, where it's really a a strong character who can be taken into other books in the series. And editors love that because then they can sell a whole series based on that character. But I think kids also may have a shorter attention span, although adults have a pretty short attention span these days too. Guilty. (laughs) Again. Especially in the, you know, the year of the pandemic. I think it's 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 easy to be very scattered. So plenty of action can kind of help keep the attention. 
Um, but then I started reading some uh, authors for adults who just did these character-driven stories where I'd, I'd realize I've just read like a five-page conversation where nothing physical was happening, you know, nothing exciting plot-oriented was happening, but I was totally gripped because of the emotions of these characters and how they were needing to communicate with each other and, you know, goal-driven. So even with character-driven stories, the characters have goals and they have things they're trying to achieve. And so it doesn't have to be an argument necessarily, but a conversation can have two characters who want different things or want the same thing, but aren't communicating it well. And so you still have those, that tension in character. And once I realized that, I became more interested in writing character-driven stories um, because it's, it's just another type of plotting, I think. Okay. Yeah. And I think it's kind of interesting. Um, I don't know, as an author where you get to see them grow and develop and, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost like an altered you. <laughs> right. So and do you have, um, are any of your characters a part of you? Like you could say, yeah, this is, you know, this is a whole lot of me because, you know, ourselves is probably the best we know anybody. And you're going to see that in all the cal- characters and people we've encountered. But is there any one of your books? It's like totally you. I mean, all of them probably have a little bit of me. Um, mm-hmm. It's an interesting question because I have my mystery series that's coming out next year. The main character is a, a war correspondent, which I have never been and would not want to be. Uh, right. But she is before the story begins, she has been injured in a bombing. And so her leg is damaged and she has to walk with a cane. She's turning 50. And so she moves back home to Arizona where her parents live and moves back into the house she grew up in with her father. And her mother has recently gone into an Alzheimer's unit, which is not true of my mother. Um, But it's this character who's turning 50 and her body is letting her down for the first time in her very active life. And she has aging parents and she's trying to sort of connect with them in new ways. um, And she's worried about her future. And so there are a lot of things that came out of me facing 50 and drawing on that and then it's a it's a first person voice and she's kind of snarky um I didn't actually (laughs) think that I was writing a humorous novel but both my agent and my editor were like oh I laughed so much I was like okay it's just you know it's not slapstick humor it's more observational the way she sees the world um which I guess is the way I see the world and I don't necessarily think of myself as a as a very funny person um but it comes through when these observations that, you know, that quirkiness. So she's probably the most like me, um, even though I've written all these other books, you might think that an author would start by writing a character who is the most like her and then, you know, go off into other directions, but I kind of did the reverse. But then um, the well of sacrifice, you know, this is a Mayan girl in 900 AD. So completely different world. But there was one scene where there's a ritual they did um, and a cornmeal paste was put in various body parts, including between the toes. And I mentioned that it was ticklish. And my boyfriend at the time was like, oh, yeah, because you're ticklish between your toes. <laughs> and I was like, well, isn't everybody? <laughs> I didn't realize that was an unusual thing. So, so sometimes <laughs> these things might creep into your stories just because 
that's how you see the world. That's your experience. And you don't realize that it's not true for everybody. Right. Yeah. That's something that, um, I don't know. Cause we, we all live through our own experiences, our filters and everything. And, you know, that's always the, the big risk, I guess. Sometimes you not sure who's going to connect. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's, that's always a surprise with mine. I write a lot. Um, I do a lot of, uh, memoirs. So mm-hmm. I have like, the series. So touch trial by fire and mastering the paradox is just the, the series, the first series, and I'm coming out with the next one, but it always surprises me because I have a, had a lot of paranormal activity. Nobody's oohing and ah over that. They're always going, I could totally relate to all the, the personal dramas, you know, mm-hmm. the boss who picks on you, the boyfriend who cheated on you, right. you know, the family drama, I mean, and I'm like, yes, but I predicted, you know, the crash of TWA in full detail. I could probably, nobody's caring about that at all. So, you know. Right. Yeah, and we can accept that kind of thing. You know, in books, we can accept vampires or werewolves or ghosts or aliens yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's a story. Whether you believe in that stuff in your normal life or not, you can just sort of make that that leap. Um, but what really connects you to the character are all those daily life things that, yes, yeah, even life. if you don't have a crazy family, you at least, well, most of us probably have at least some crazy family, yeah, at least some crazy, right. I- <laughs> and, but you, and you had friends and you've heard their stories and right. you know, it's real. And that, so that helps ground you in the story so that you can believe the less believable aspects. If there mm-hmm. are, if it's a fantasy or a science fiction or, or something like that. So. Yeah. But, yeah. It's always interesting. I always like the feedback um, mm-hmm. that you get because um, it, I mean, it just makes you a better, I think a better um, author because now you're, you're fine tuning to other people's perceptions, not mm-hmm. that you change for there, but certainly key like aha moments that I'm like, Oh, I didn't think about that. Well, I could fix that. And maybe, bring a little more texture context that mm-hmm. helps um, connect with the reader to certain, you know, subjects or situations, right. both in fiction and nonfiction. So, right. Um, Sometimes it's, it's not that they can't relate, but maybe you haven't sort of drawn the, the lines to help them relate right. a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, I've had some of my, like my romance, romantic suspense books, I've had um, one reviewer say, Oh, you know, I just, I didn't like this character very much. I didn't, you know, she's also wishy-washy. And, and then other people would say, she's just like me. She thinks exactly how yeah. I do. And so, you know, well, maybe not, it's not going to be right for every reader. Um, and then this is kind of an interesting story. Um, what we found is um, a mystery with a strong romantic element. And it's about a young woman who she's going for a walk in the woods with um a guy that she had a crush on in high school. And now it's, she's back after college and they find a dead body in the woods and he, he doesn't want to report it because he has his own secrets. Um, and so, but she, she does report it and she gets caught up in this mystery. Well, this was inspired by the real experience of finding the body of a murdered woman um, with my now husband and a friend of ours, we were hiking wow. and yeah, and it wound up basically helping put this guy in prison because the woman had been missing and he was a suspect, but they didn't have a body and he wow. had hidden her. In the... 
Um, and so obviously that is kind of a powerful experience. And um, I took a lot of notes at the time thinking about someday I'm going to use it. And I can't right now. It's yeah. too close right now. Close. But someday yeah. I'm going to want to use this and kind of know how how we were affected. And I was fortunate that my husband and this male friend of ours were not the typical men who, you know, hide all the emotions. They wanted to get together and talk about, you know, what we were feeling and how we were dealing with this and so forth. And then about took about two years before I felt ready to write it. And uh, one of the things that came out initially is um, the friend knew somebody who was in pretty high up in government law enforcement. And he said, a lot of times people find a murder victim and they don't report it. Right. And the first thought was like, what, 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 why, why wouldn't you? Oh, well, you know, maybe they were involved in some kind of criminal activity at the time. Maybe, maybe it was a teenager who cut school and just doesn't want to, you know, admit that they were there. Maybe it's an illegal immigrant who does, you know, there's a lot of reasons people might not want to call right. attention to themselves. Maybe they're afraid that whoever committed the crime would come after them. And so it got me thinking about all those things. And that's what kind of led to this story. But after it was published, you know, one of the reviews I got was, I can't believe that anybody would not report a murder victim. It's so unbelievable. <laughs> it's like, that was the one most true thing about this was that people do not yeah. always report that kind of thing. Yeah, so, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. And you can't control people's reaction, but sometimes the thing that they don't believe is the thing that's true. And the stuff that they find easy to believe is the stuff that you made up. So. Go figure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. That is very interesting. Well, uh, let's talk about uh, maybe writing for educational publishers. So mm-hmm. uh, I don't think that's a subject that's often talked about. So tell, tell us all a little bit about that. Uh, There are a lot of publishers who write books that are targeted, trade books are what we usually see like in the bookstores Mm -hmm. and, you know, the public library and so forth. Educational books um, are often targeted more at schools, school libraries, classroom use and so forth. And so these publishers that specialize in that, they figure out what kids are learning at different ages, what's available, oh, maybe it's time to update this World War II series because the books that are out there are, you know, a little bit older and maybe don't show the diversity of experience. Okay. These days, there's a lot more interest in really making sure that the stories are told, not just of sort of the mainstream white people. So um, I did get hired to write a couple of books that were life during World War I and life during World War II, um, daily life kind of things. But, you know, making sure to say, what was it like for African-Americans? What was it like for immigrants? You know, what was it like for women um, and, you know, Asians because of some of the racism that came out of, you know, at that time. Right. And so there can be rooms for these topics where um, because there's a new angle that we're seeing on it or perhaps, um, you know, there's careers books and um, different kinds of science books that are replacing some of the, the more textbook type styles and in a more engaging kind of thing. So the publisher will say, we think that we want to do a a book, a series, and maybe it'll be eight to 10 books um, on world war two or um, cultures of the world or whatever it is. And they'll hire authors to do those books. Okay. So to get into that kind of work, you have to, first of all, find those publishers 
um, and then send usually a, a query with letter with a writing sample and a resume if you have any of that background. <clears throat> okay. um, and it can take sometimes a couple of years before you might hear back from one because they, they may keep it on file and then when they need a new writer or they say, oh, this is a good sort of fit with that person, they'll call you. And so one way to get into that kind of work is if you have area expertise. If you are a scientist or have a history background or something like that, they may give you a chance, even if you don't have the writing, you know, the children's writing experience um, or teachers may be, that can be a good area for them. But then once you're into it, if you are willing to write on any subject, that's a big help. Um, so I've done all these science and history and, and it's like, I've done two books on mechanical engineering. And the first one is like, I'm not even sure what exactly mechanical engineering is. But I trust that I can do the research and I can figure it out and I can explain it to, to kids. Um, the other important skill is to be able to write to a specific grade level because they will usually tell you we need it to be, um, there's a couple of different systems, but it'll be like an ATOS 8.0 to 9.0, which is eighth grade, basically. And the point is like what month of that grade. So you have to come in there. Or it is, you know, they want it at a fourth grade level. And that doesn't mean that sixth grade level is okay. Um, so you have to be able to write it to the appropriate grade level. And if you're doing um, particularly history and science topics, because they have um, language that is specific to that topic, that can make it hard to write at a younger grade level. Um, dates are hard, um, country names and so forth. It's, you know, once you, it's hard to get like a third grade level if you're doing that kind of thing. It's possible, but challenging. If for some reason they particularly want it at a 10th grade level, that can actually be hard if you like to write sort of nice, clean stories because 10th grade is, is fairly advanced. You know, it's not how we speak. It's not how the daily paper is written. So um, unless you have a lot of that terminology, you might have to go for longer, more complex sentences in order to bump the grade level up. I was going to ask you about that. What identifies the grade levels? Because, you know, you have the, you know, is it the sentence structure? Is the word choice? You know, what, what, what distinguishes all those levels? It is a combination. And that's why there are, there's like a website so that you can sort of run your, your writing through to check what it is. Okay. Um, because yeah, it's, it's longer sentences are going to be a higher grade level. So if you want to go for a lower grade level, shorter sentences are better, you know, not compound sentences and dependent clauses and so forth. Okay. Um, shorter paragraphs also help and then vocabulary as well. And, um, there's even, I have a guide that's uh, one of the publishers gave me that's, um, vocabulary level for different grades. And so you can look up a specific word and see, what grade level it is. And so sometimes that helps if you're like, well, which, which is a, of these two words is at a lower grade level. And you can, you know, can I, can I use this one instead? But sometimes it takes a lot of, of practice to try to figure it out. So you might write something and it's like, um, I've also done test passages. So the schools do, you know, those standardized testings um, okay. that, I'm not really in favor of them, but somebody has to write the articles and the yeah. stories that the kids are being tested on and the questions as well. And you can get paid for writing those articles and stories and for writing the questions. Um, and it can be a very narrow grade level. And so you might write it and then test it and like, nope, it's too high. Write it, you know, rewrite it, test it. Oh, now it's too low. And then you have to kind of fiddle with that language to get it right where they want it. 
And for fiction, it can be hard to get it high enough uh, because, you know, dialogue, if you're writing good dialogue, tends to be, you know, shorter, you know, you don't have huge paragraphs. Um, and those short sentences and short paragraphs will lower the grade level. So all of these things have to be considered and, and practiced in order to get an appropriate grade level for whatever it is that they're targeting. Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, I haven't heard too many authors talk about that. I don't think that's well explored, maybe because there's a certain criteria that you have to, you know, watch with the word choice, sentence structure, paragraph length, but mm -hmm. certainly well worth it to explore if, um, you know, if there's an, an area to do so. Yes. Um, and, you know, it's a need. Do you know of, um, because I'll, I'll be honest, I haven't heard of too many authors who explored that area for writing. You don't particularly need to if you're writing for adults. Um, you know, it's maybe more of a style issue. Writing for kids, I think partly that people are, they tend to be drawn toward writing for the age that suits them. So if you like a little more flowery language and longer sentences and so forth, you might write young adult and then you can have a higher grade level. If you're writing for middle grade, you know, you might do that shorter kind of instinctively because ideally you read a lot in whatever genre you're writing. Yeah. And if you're writing for middle grade, it's not like the publisher is going to say it must be exactly this grade level. It can be more of anywhere from third through sixth grade, maybe even seventh. Uh, so it's really the educational publishing that it gets to be more of an issue or writing um, early reader chapter books. So these are for the, you know, the first through third grade when kids are learning to read. And the publishers who do those definitely have a lot of strict guidelines. And for those, it can even be, depending on the publisher, it might be for, you know, a level one sentences are no more than five words long and um, this many words per book. And so and as you get a little um, a higher grade level, because they're sort of stepping through the reading um, to help the kids learn. It's like now we can have compound sentences, but still no more than 12 words long. <laughs> So it can be very strict guidelines, but most people don't, um, they don't start there because mo a lot of people who even write for children, they don't sort of recognize that there is that leveled reader um, genre because uh, it's not what they really remember reading as a kid. It's, um, you can find it in the library, but it'll be in its own section. So unless you're a teacher, you may not really ever think about that kind of writing. And then if you're writing picture books for the youngest children, often they'll be read aloud by the adult. So they don't have to have such a low grade level. You know, you still want to make sure that the language is, you know, you're not using words that kids won't understand. But just as one example, um, the word cereal, like the stuff you eat for breakfast, I think it's like a fifth grade reading level because it's kind of a, it's a weird word spell, spelling wise, but any four-year-old is going to know what cereal is if they hear it read aloud in a book. So it makes a difference whether the adult is reading it or whether the child is trying to read it on their own. Gotcha. Now with your books, do you have um, a preference of like age range that you focus on when you're doing your, um, your books? Um, I really like when I'm writing for children, I really like that middle grade uh, okay. range. So that fourth to sixth grade level would be okay. kind of um, what I prefer. Like the, your sweet spot that you're aiming for. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's kind of where I naturally fall. 
I have have I have enough experience now that if I'm asked to write something at say an eighth grade level, um, I can usually get it pre- pretty close on the first, okay. you know, the, before I even test it. I kind of just know where that is, um, and that just comes with a lot of experience. Okay. But especially for fiction, I like that fourth grade. Yeah. Okay. So well, that's good. That's <clears throat> very good. Well, um, let's talk about. What are some of the key advice for other writers who, you know, might want to explore this particular niche? What are, what are some of the key takeaways that, you know, maybe three key things that you would recommend that they can work on, focus on? Well, if you want to write for children, it's important that you really understand how children's publishing industry works Um, because there's things like a lot of beginners if they're writing picture books they assume that they have to find the illustrator and if you want to self-publish it then yes you do but if you want to send it to a traditional publisher you don't and you should not because they will want to hire their own illustrator and so really the advice is to um, study before you get started so join the society of children's book writers and illustrators um, if you're on Facebook, there's a KidLit411 group that's very active. Um, so there's plenty of information out there. So, you know, don't just sort of dive in without doing any of that research first. You know, there's books on it. There's all kinds of information um, that will help you avoid some of those mistakes that can be really damaging because if you've written this manuscript and then you have a friend who's a great artist and you ask her to illustrate it, and she starts doing the artwork, and then you find out that that was wrong and you shouldn't have done it. Well, now what do you do? Are you mm-hmm. going to go to your friend and say, I'm sorry, you've done all this work, but I can't submit with your illustrations? Right. Or are you going to submit the manuscript and then maybe the editor says, we like it, but we want all these changes and, and then the artwork's going to be very different. And, oh, we'll look at samples from this person, but no, that's not the artist we want to use. We want to, you know. So you can, I mean, that's one of the worst case scenarios is that like you actually are put in a position of hurting your friendship or sort of giving up on the project or, you know, how do you handle that? So, you know, do the research first. Um, You'll save yourself some of that kind of awkwardness. Um, You won't be submitting work to agents that's, it's just the wrong length for what you say it is, or you're using the wrong terminology Um, in writing for children chapter book often refers to one of those early readers that you know the leveled readers for like the first first through third grade but in teaching a chapter book tends to be any book with chapters so you know kids now they're reading a chapter book because it has chapters and so people who are writing what we in publishing would call a middle grade novel call it a chapter book and that just it's just wrong when you're in publishing So, you know, you need to kind of learn that the terminology and the guidelines and what's an appropriate length for different ages and, um, and just to know what it is you're actually trying to write. And so the resources are out there. Um, There's plenty of them, but look at them first. Um, So that's the one piece of advice is just to, you know, study a little bit before you dive in too much. Um, The second would be to have a lot of fun with it. You know, we can't control the outcome. Um, you can do, like, I have published almost every genre for all ages, except picture books. 
Now I've written some picture books um, and I think they're pretty good. And I've had, you know, published authors who think they're pretty good and I, but I can't sell them. So um, I'm not, you know, I'm not giving up. I still have these manuscripts. And when I find an appropriate publisher, I send it out. Or if I learn something new, maybe I go back and I make some changes. I think they're getting better and better, but I cannot make someone buy my book. I could self-publish it if I wanted to go in that direction, but then I would just have another issue of, you know, getting the customers to buy my book and that's its own problem. So, you know, you can't, you can say, I'm going to learn, I'm going to write, I'm going to send out this many query letters, but you can't say I am going to get an agent or I'm going to get a book deal because you do not have that control. So, you know, goals are great, but try to make them ones that are about what you can do, not what depends on other people. Um, and it can be a long journey, so you might as well have fun along the way. Right, right. Mm-hmm. That sounds like some good advice. Mm-hmm. And just since you bring it up versus publisher versus um, self-publishing, uh, is there a preference or maybe um, like in the case of the friend with the illustration, maybe you want to try this self-publishing versus the, have you found any any do they both work for you is there one that works better for you that you've you know with the publisher they do a little more of the legwork but mm-hmm. with the self-publishing it's you know you have more control over your start to finish projects right um they both can work if you like to have the control and you're willing to do all that work and learn about everything from you know book design to marketing or hire people which can cost a lot of money then self-publishing can be successful. It works better for adult genre fiction where you're selling eBooks that you can price lower. Um, Children's books, it's hard to self-publish children's books successfully. There are some people who've done it, um, but it can be more expensive, especially if you're doing picture books that require those illustrations. Um, And if you, it's not enough to know somebody who's a good artist. They have to be a good picture book illustrator and they have to know how to get the right kind of files that will, you know, the the digital files that will turn out right. Um, So there's other things that go into it. And then there's book design aspects and all of that stuff. Uh, It is easier these days because you don't necessarily have to do a print run and get 10,000 books, which are sitting in your garage. You can do print on demand, but it is hard to market directly. Um, children's books do still sell better in paper um, which means I mean you can self-publish paper books as well as ebooks but your paper books are going to cost more and so and you're not really being able to target teachers or librarians Um, it's very hard to sort of get reviewed in the, the review publications that go to them I I do have some like my self-published book that's set in ancient Egypt um I published this, I I had hoped to sell it it traditionally. And what I was hearing at the time was, oh, we already have an Egypt book. And it's like, yes, but your Egypt book was published in the 1970s and it's really slow. Um, Besides which, have you ever heard of cross-promoting? You know, people can buy more than one Egypt book. (laughs) And then teachers were telling me, oh, I wish you get that published. I want to use it in the classroom. And so I eventually decided that self-publishing was a reasonable choice. Um, and I did some marketing where uh, I partnered with some other historical fiction writers, and we went through the National Council of Social Studies websites for every state, and we got all the emails we could, and then sent out small batches. Um, 
offering a free electronic review copy and information on the book. And I think also because of the Well of Sacrifice was already being used in schools and some teachers knew me through that, um, I've done okay with this. Uh, you know, not great, but you know, I have made some thousands of dollars. So that's something though, where it's a fairly small niche. Um, there are not a lot of middle grade novels set in ancient Egypt. Right. Um, so if somebody is looking for one, they're more likely to find mine versus if it's just a, a contemporary humor or even a fantasy or science fiction story, you know, how are readers going to find you? Right. How are you going to find them um, is really the big question. So, you know, some people have done it well. Um, a lot of people who have self-published have, you know, just, it doesn't really do anything. You just, your books don't sell very much. And so if that's not important to you, if it's really that you want to write the work, you want to get it out there, you don't want to deal with the process of querying agents and publishers and it can take years and things can go wrong and, you know, your publisher gets bought out by a different publisher, (laughs) your editor leaves and, you know, anybody who's done traditional publishing has one of those horror stories of, yeah. Something that seemed good and then went bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, yeah, you avoid that. You have the control, um, but you know it doesn't mean that it's going to be a wild success with any right. with any ease. So, right. Well, that's why it's important to have fun. Yes, because you know you may have the best story, and it's just hard to get it in the right vein to the to your you know, interested readers. So yeah, you just make sure you have fun. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, for some people it's fun to figure out like book layout yeah, um, and, you know, marketing and so forth. And if not, if you have money, you can hire other people to do it. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who are ready to take advantage of authors and charge you way too much. Yep. Um, and sometimes I meet those people too late and it's like, oh, you shouldn't have done it that way. You know, now it's, you've done it. You spent the money. Um, you didn't get what you deserve to get for that amount of money. You know, you spent $20,000 and maybe you could have spent four or five if you had exactly. sort of hired people individually who are experts, as opposed to going through one of these companies that makes big promises and right. doesn't deliver. Right. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to launch a podcast is to have good information mm-hmm. and you know, this podcast isn't necessarily about being the best-selling, you know, author. It's about leaping into your story and sharing it. Mm -hmm. So whether you decide to just do a fun copy to say, you know, here's my story and I've, you know, got it published um, or the best next bestseller, but, you know, I want to line up really great people um, who have awesome information and mostly to stop people from making errors and you know because errors are costly they they cost money and they cost time and waste effort too where you could have put those resources in better placement so um certainly i i have not only authors but i'm going to have some marketing folks in there that you know mix it up maybe some graphic designers so it's Mm going to be a whole different mix of everybody and people who are in the profession writing books on it people who work a different profession and write about something else on the side so it's people who blog just I mean it's all about writing and that's really what I want to do is bring some you know value um 
into and and from different streams you know maybe and you have also magazine writing and i know there's some folks who are going to be talking about doing the hustle on the side with articles on some mm-hmm. you know um trustworthy essay <laughs> websites <laughs> right <laughs> that uh uh, they can explore and hopefully migrate into full-time writing. Right. Well, Chris, I want to thank you. This has been just an amazing time with you. I thank you for your time and your insight and your advice. So let's find out a little bit more. Uh, where, where can we find out a little more, more about you? So. Well, I write under actually three different names. Um, Chris Ebach is my name writing for children. And my website is www.chrisebach.com. I also write for a lot of the work for hire. I write um, under MM Ebach. And that's purely a practical thing because if I don't get royalties on it, I don't want it on like my main Amazon page with my most recent books. So by using a different name, it kind of you know, keeps my, my royalty books um, on that first page. Um, for adults, the name's a little different, Chris Bach. And I have a different website that's www.chrisbach.com. And then, of course, I'm on Amazon under both of those names. And um, I'm mostly for social media. Um, I mostly do Chris Bach for like Pinterest and Instagram and um, Twitter because I'm, I'm more in the adult genre there. Um, but Let's see, where else would you want to find me? I think that's yeah. probably, probably it. Website, Amazon, you know, BookBub. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm most places under one or the other name or sometimes both. Nice. Well, great. Well, <clears throat> and I, I also do um, offer critiques for writers of, of any genre, but I do mostly uh, children's books critiques. And there's information about that on my Chris Ebach website on the For Writers page. Okay. And I also do have a blog for writers. Okay, good. Well, that's awesome. Well, again, I can't thank you enough. This has been fantastic. It's been a pleasure to uh, converse with you today and get some really good information for listeners. So thank you for tuning into Leap Into Your Story Show, where you discover your inner story. We help you uh, work through the process and meet others who've already done it. So certainly, um, I want to be sure to have you uh, visit Chris's site and also leapintoyourstory.com where you can find other great shows like this. And we look forward to uh, having you tune in again to Leap Into Your Story show. So y'all have a good day. And thank you, Chris. Great talking to you, Victoria. Thank you for tuning into the Leap Into Your Story podcast, where you discover your inner story, break down the process, and meet others who've done it so you can leap into your own story. Remember to visit our website at leapintoyourstory.com and enjoy even more great episodes like this one. Again, while you're there, subscribe and like to us via your favorite social media network. We're looking forward to seeing you next time on the Leap Into Your Story podcast.